Thank you. It's my uh, pleasure to be with you and be part of this missions conference. Uh, as uh, Mark said, I come from Lexington, Massachusetts, and I uh, live about seven miles from where I grew up, so I am a native New Englander. And I tell you that, thank you. I brought some family members with me, too, and it's uh, nice to have them applaud. Uh, I tell you that because if I say any words that you don't understand, just try to take it in context and figure it out. For example, the uh, man who introduced me would be Mark Catlock. And uh, so, Mark, thanks uh, for that introduction. I'm also excited because, like Mark, I believe that young people, youth, college-age students, and older are the men and women who are going to lead the cause of Christ into the year 2000 and beyond. And because there is, as I see it, both locally uh, nationally and worldwide, a re revival amongst Christian young people with a concern for cross-cultural missions. And you're part of that. And I want to encourage you along those lines and tell you how excited I am to know that you are going out this week in service, in cross-cultural context, and to stretch your own faith. But you're not the only ones. Uh, a couple of years ago, I had the opportunity to be at a conference where there were 1,500 East African students and those East African students were there primarily to consider God's call into cross-cultural ministry and where God would be calling them into the ends of the earth. And similar conferences take place in Korea. They've taken place in Taiwan. They've taken place in Sri Lanka. And they're taking place here in the United States, just like this one here today. Young people are going to be the ones that lead the charge, I believe, into the year 2000 and beyond because... When you are younger, oftentimes you can have the dreams without all of the baggage that we as adults might bring. And we need some of that idealism to get the cause of Christ completed through the Great Commission. Now, when I come to speak at a missions conference, I realize that as a speaker, there's a propensity for me or any speaker to put forth their best foot for the sake of the time that they have. In other words, to give you all of the best stories that I've ever heard in an attempt to motivate you to get out and go. And we had a speaker like that at our church a few years ago. She was a woman uh, Bible translator with the Wycliffe Bible Translators in uh, Papua New Guinea. And she was a fabulous missionary speaker. She had so many stories and she had the congregation laughing and crying, just eating out of her hand in terms of her ability to tell great stories. And she was such an effective communicator that I decided I'm going to go hear this person speak as many times as I possibly can. So I did. I signed up for all the different meetings, and I went and I listened, and I took notes. One of the things that I noticed was that over the course of the week, while this missionary was speaking, they, the stories began to repeat. In other words, the stories that were told on Sunday were also repeated by about Thursday. And as I listened and I realized that these stories were getting repeated, I realized that this missionary had, in the course of about 16 years of missionary service in Papua New Guinea, maybe about 12 great stories. Now, I thought to myself, 16 years of missionary service, 12 great stories. That's less than one great story per year. And I said, what is it that keeps that person going all the rest of the time? Now, you're going to be going out this week, and many of you are going to come back with some great stories. But what I want to focus on this morning is a look at a potential example of cross-cultural missions, a man in the Old Testament who set an example of being an example of uh, perseverance and longevity 
and the faithfulness that it takes to really see some of the greatest things happen in the kingdom of Christ. An example for us, those of you going out into cross-cultural ministry this week, an example of a cross-cultural man of God. It's in Genesis chapter 37 that I ask you to turn your attention. And you might have guessed already that I'm thinking of the person of Joseph. Now, Joseph obviously was not a traditional missionary. He didn't sign up at a missions conference. He didn't go by his own will. And uh, he went sort of into a context that he might not have chosen to go into. And he went into a nation that was quite different than his own. But Joseph is an example, a model to you and me, of someone who was willing to persevere in the hard work of cross-cultural work, to be a man of God in the midst of a culture that was rejecting who he was and what he stood for, and he was faithful even to the point of bringing redemption to the people of Israel, as you well know. Now, the reason I point you to Joseph is because Joseph sets before us some examples of how our lives ought to be in the 1990s in terms of being God's men or God's women in a culture that doesn't welcome us, in a world that doesn't welcome us, and especially to those who go cross-culturally into another culture to which the gospel might be brand new. The Joseph story takes place in Genesis chapter 37 through chapter 50. I'm obviously not going to read the whole thing, but you skip over 38 because that's about uh, some of the other stories of uh, Jacob's sons. But Joseph is in verse chapter 37 and then 39 through 50. And I would encourage you, if you're going out this week especially, maybe in your personal devotional time, just to reread the story of Joseph this week. But just let me review the highlights of his life. You know them as well as I do. Joseph, at age 17, was his father's favorite son. And at age 17, Joseph had a dream. He shared the dream with his brothers. He shared it with his parents. And as a result, their animosity grew to a point that the brothers sold him into slavery. He was sold into slavery to the Midianites, taken down into what we now know as Egypt. And in Egypt, he was sold, presumably by the Midianites, to the Egyptians, specifically into the household of Potiphar. He served there in the household of Potiphar, became the head of Potiphar's household, until Potiphar's wife tried to seduce him, and he refused, he ran, and he was eventually betrayed by her and put into jail. For the next number of years, we don't know exactly how many, he was in jail, he became the head of the jail, and uh, was servant under only the, the uh, jailer himself. And as a result of his good service, they looked to him for advice. And two guys had dreams. Remember this? The cupbearer and the baker. And they had dreams. And Joseph interpreted those dreams for them. But, uh, and dreams were fulfilled. And the baker was killed and the cupbearer lived. And a couple of years later, the pharaoh, the great leader of Egypt, he had a dream. And when he had the dream, the cupbearer remembered Joseph back in prison. They went and got Joseph. Joseph interprets the dream. Pharaoh likes Joseph, likes his interpretation. Says, Joseph, I want you to come manage all of Egypt. And Joseph becomes the second in command of all of Egypt. And he manages the seven years of plenty and then two years into the famine. Finally, his dream that he had back at age 17 is fulfilled when his brothers and eventually his mother and father come and bow down to him. Now, that's pretty much the story of Joseph. There are some other events that I'm not listing, but most of those things are the story that we know as Joseph. And if you're like I am, you've heard that story since it was on the flannel graph in, high, in Sunday school class. You know, or the, you, you've had the uh, Joseph's uh, amazing uh, Technicolor dream coat, to use the musical, t t color, uh, musical title, and, you know, the, the coat of many colors. 
But I want to make four observations about Joseph today, four observations that tell us something about being God's man or God's woman in a hostile environment, being the kind of man and God, man or woman of God that God can use to the glory of Christ and the furtherance of the kingdom of Christ. Joseph has several things about his life, and I'm going to highlight just four of them this morning. And I see some of you are note-takers, which I would commend. You can think about these things later on as you continue to think about Joseph as a model for you and me. Let me start, I won't give you point one yet, but let me start by reading the first account. Chapter uh, chapter 37, verse 2. This is the account of Jacob. Joseph. A young man of 17 was tending the flocks with his brothers, the sons of Bilhah, the sons of Zilpah, his father's wives, and he brought, he brought their father a bad report about them. Now, we don't know a lot about Joseph being a sinner. There's really not in a, lot, a lot in the scriptures about him being a fallen person. This might be one of the only indications. He wasn't the greatest brother. You know, he was kind of a tattletale. And he liked being the favorite. And he may have been that he shared his dream with his brothers just to to taunt them a little bit. But anyhow, Israel, verse 3, loved Joseph more than any of his sons because he had been born to him in his old age, and he made a richly ornamented robe for him. When his brothers saw their father loved him more than any of them, they hated him and could not speak a kind word to him. Joseph had a dream. If it's your Bible that you're looking at, circle that phrase. Joseph had a dream. And when he said it to his brothers, I told it to his brothers, they hated him all the more. He said to them, "Listen to his dream that I listen to this dream that I had. We were binding sheaves of grain out in the field when suddenly my sheep rose and stood upright, while your sheaves gathered around mine and bowed down to it." His brothers said to him, "Do you intend to reign over us? Will you actually rule us?" They hated him all the more because of this dream and what he had said. Then he had another dream and he told it to his brothers, "Listen," he said, "I had another dream, and this time the sun and the moon and the eleven stars were bowing down to me." When he told his father as well as his brothers, his father rebuked him and said, What is this dream that you had? Will your mother and I and your brothers actually come and bow down to the ground before you? His brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept the matter in mind. The first thing that I see in Joseph's life, and he might not have managed it the way that he should have, but the first thing about Joseph's life is, Joseph had a dream. Joseph had a dream. And he had a dream that came from God. Now, how do we know that? Well, we know it because we know the rest of the story. We know that the dream was fulfilled. We know that the dream was actualized by Joseph later in his life. But Joseph had a dream. And the first thought that I want to give you this morning is, do you have a dream? Have you waited at God's throne and listened to him and said, God, Give me a dream about my life. Give me a dream about how you want to use my life. Give me a dream about how you want to affect other people's lives through me. Now, a dream is not the same as just a goal. Some of you might have the dream of graduating 4.0. Are you on a four-point scale here? Okay, because if you were on a five-point scale, that wouldn't be such a big dream, would it? No. But if you're dreaming, you know, you want to graduate summa cum laude, you know, the highest honors. Now, some of you are upperclassmen, and you know that that's a fantasy. It's not going to ever happen. But others of you might be just starting, and you say, that's my dream. Well, if you already are a highly academic person and know from your SAT scores and everything that that's not such an unachievable goal, that might be more of a goal than it would be a dream. 
Because a dream, in this sense, is not something just that happens in nighttime in your head, but it says something like a goal that could only happen if God did it. Now, that's Joseph's dream. You see, Joseph was having this dream about people bowing down to him. That's not the normal dream for a nomadic shepherd boy to have. And secondly, he's one of the youngest of the 12 sons, so the thought of his brothers coming and bowing down to him, that's not a normal dream either. Now, Joseph maybe didn't know how to handle the dream, but he had a dream that was bigger than anything that he could have done in his own strength. Maybe that's the dream that you need. Is there any dream that you have that's bigger than anything you could do in your own strength? Bigger than anything that you could do just by planning yourself out and making your good goal to-do list? Have you got a dream from God? For those of you going out this week, have you begun to dream some dreams about how God is going to use your life this week? Maybe God is going to use you to be the person who discovers the most effective way to reach Mormons for Christ. Maybe God's going to give you a, a, the answer to the big question of how do you address the gospel to the persons in the new age. Maybe God's going to give you a dream about how you're going to become a person who works with the inner city poor and empowers them to make a difference in the world. Where is your dream? First question concerning the dream, does it come from God? Because all of us have the capacity of dreaming of greatness. When I was in high school, somebody asked me what my dream was. I said, I want to be president of the world. Now, that wasn't necessarily from God. That was maybe from my own ego. And that's why I separate the two. What's your dream from God? The, the founder of the group called The Navigators, Dawson Trotman, used to get on his knees before God. And Dawson Trotman started this ministry where the few people that he was discipling, it eventually evolved into a worldwide discipleship-oriented ministry. And Dawson Trotman used to get on his knees before God and he said, God, give me a dream. Give me a dream. The founder of the Wycliffe Bible Translators, Cameron Townsend, he had a great dream. He was 82 years old just before he died. And his dream, still then he was dreaming. He says, I dream of the day when Russia will open its door and allow us to come in and do Bible translations in the native languages of the Russian republics. He didn't live, live to see his dream, but that was his dream. And he was having it at 82 years old. Do you have a dream today? Now, a dream might not be as glamorous as reaching all of the Russian republics or transforming the world single-handedly, but a dream has to do with the transformation of people's lives. Some of you are youth workers and youth ministry majors. As a youth minister, I used to uh, uh, be in charge at our church of the youth group, but because we couldn't make any money in our church as the youth group leader, they also made me the custodian of the youth facility because that paid more than being the youth group leader. But I have to confess, there were times when, as a youth group leader, I would begrudgingly be there on Sunday morning at 7 o'clock in the morning setting up the chairs. And I was thinking, you know, I'm a man of God. I should be home preparing myself. I should be praying and fasting, not setting up these dumb chairs. But, you know, God broke through to me one day and reminded me of the fact that my business was to be a person who dreams dreams for some of the young people in our group. And so my whole attitude towards setting up the chairs was transformed. You know how? I began to pray about every chair. Pray for every kid who's going to sit in those chairs. Pray that some of them will become cross-cultural missionaries. Others might become international ambassadors. Some of them might become ministers, and others become, you know, people who work in the home 
and make young people disciples for Jesus Christ and begin to dream dreams. Because when we think about the word dream, maybe the word you're more comfortable with is vision. And some of you, God has put in charge of teams this week. God has made you supervisors. You know what a supervisor is? Somebody who gives vision to those beneath him or her. Supervision. Do you have a dream? And can you dream that dream for other people? As a youth pastor, you can get sort of uh, bogged down in day-to-day life, and I certainly did. And uh, one of the things that kept me going, though, was this dream that I had. I had two dreams when I was in the high school ministry. One is that I was going to, through our high school ministry, produce young men and women who would go into cross-cultural ministry all over the world. And later in my life, I would dedicate two years of my life, that was my dream, two years of my life to going and visiting alumni of our youth ministry all over the world. Now, bear in mind, there are young people, you mentioned junior high ministry, the woman who sang for us. You know, there are young people in the junior high ministry that are sometimes difficult to dream dreams for. You know, I dream of this young kid going to heaven, like right now. You know, and, uh, you know, it's just hard to dream dreams. But God gave me that dream. You know, a number of years later, I saw the dream fulfilled. Because I've been now overseas visiting young people who were in my high school group. But I didn't know it was going to happen. It was a dream that could only happen by the power of God. I said I had a second dream. One of my other dreams was that someday I was going to walk on the Great Wall of China. Now, you might say, that's not that big of a dream. Well, it was when I was in uh, college-age ministry because of the fact that China wasn't open to the outsider. This last October, I walked on the Great Wall of China. And as I stood on that wall, I did sort of a Joshua chapter 1 type of thing. You know, every, every place that the sole of your foot treads upon, I've given it to you. And I just prayed and asked Jesus Christ to claim China for his kingdom. 1.1 billion people. Joseph had a dream. Now, a lot of us have backgrounds and baggage that we bring with us that makes it difficult to dream. But I'm not asking you to dream dreams based on your abilities. I'm asking you to dream dreams based on the awesomeness of God. How do you want to see God use your life? Do you believe that you can make a difference in our world through the power of Jesus Christ? Dream some dreams. Dream some dreams for the young people that you might touch through the ministries you go out on this week. And dream some dreams about the future that God has for you. Joseph had a dream. A second thing you note about Joseph is in chapter 39. Again, I won't read the whole passage to you. But in Joseph's life, chapter 39, you have the account of Joseph and Potiphar's wife. Now, it's interesting that God, through his Holy Spirit, wanted us to have this passage of Joseph's life remembered. Because it's kind of an unusual passage to have as an isolated case in Joseph's life. But it's a story, obviously, of Joseph and Potiphar's wife. Now, I'm sure there are biblical scholars who might contest me on this, but you have to remember one thing about this story about Joseph and Potiphar. Potiphar was probably sort of an old dude. But in that culture in those days, he would have been taking a younger woman as a wife. So in terms of age span... Potiphar's wife was probably closer in age to Joseph than he was, she was to Potiphar. Because some of us think, well, no wonder Joseph ran. I mean, you know. You know, some, uh, you know, some, 
some lady approaches him, you know, oh, sleep with me. You know, I mean, and that's not the story. Here's Joseph. He's probably a virile young man. He has no wife. He's fully at maritable age. Joseph. Joseph had been taken down to Egypt. Potiphar, an Egyptian who was one of Pharaoh's officials, the captain of the guard, bought him from the Ishmaelites who had taken him there. The Lord was with Joseph. That phrase actually is repeated several times in this chapter. And he prospered and lived in the house of the Egyptian master. When his master saw that the Lord was with him and that the Lord gave him success in everything he did, Joseph found favor in the eyes and became his attendant. And Potiphar put him in charge of his household and he entrusted to his care everything he owned. From the time he put him in charge of his household and all that he owned, the Lord blessed the household of the Egyptian because of Joseph. The blessing of the Lord was on everything Potiphar had, both in the house and in the field. So he left in Joseph's care everything he had. With Joseph in charge, he did not concern himself with anything except the food he ate. Now, Joseph was well-built and handsome. Now, in 90s terminology, that means Joseph was a hunk. Okay? Do you use that term? That's not a term. I'm not in trouble, am I? Okay. Joseph was a, a hunk. All right? He was, you know, he was well-built. He was handsome. He was nice to look at. After a while, his master's wife took notice of Joseph and said, Come to bed with me. Now, in the Bible, you have a lot of hidden meanings. This is not one of them. This is a very blatant approach. She is, you know, up there, she's enticing him. And it says she does it over and over and over again until one day she entraps him. She gets everybody else out of the house. She corners him. And as you remember the story, Joseph runs out. She grabs his robe and he streaks out of the room and she gets the robe left. And then she uses that to contrive the story that Joseph was in here and here. Here's the proof of it. He left his cloak behind and he was trying to molest me. And that's what gets him thrown in jail. The second thing I want you to observe about Joseph is that Joseph had convictions. Joseph had convictions. Now, convictions are the things that make you stronger than just beliefs. You can believe something and not really have to act on it, but a conviction influences your behavior. Joseph had a conviction. One of his convictions, obviously, in the story with Potiphar's wife, was to stay sexually pure. To stay sexually pure. Joseph would have been a good example to those of us in the 1990s where it's so difficult for us, either mentally or actually, to stay sexually pure. But Joseph seemed to have this conviction that he was living his life, the way I say it is, before an audience of one. Before an audience of one. You see, Joseph's brothers wouldn't have known. Joseph's father wouldn't have known. And Joseph's, you know, Potiphar wouldn't have known. But Joseph, it's interesting. It says, but he refused, verse 8. With me in charge, he told him, my master does not concern me with anything in the house. Everything he owns, he has entrusted to my care. No one is greater in this house than I am. My master has withheld nothing from me except you, because you are his wife. How could I do such a wicked thing and sin against my family name? Is that what it says? How could I do such a wicked thing and sin against Potiphar? Is that what it says? How could I do such a wicked thing and sin against God? Wherever Joseph went and whatever he did, he believed he was living his life before that audience of one, that God was watching. One of the telltale signs of our character is summarized in the title of a book that came out as a catchy title, 
Who you are when no one's looking. Who you are when no one's looking. That tells you something about your character. Who you are when only God is there. Now, I don't know exactly what you'll be doing this week on your mission teams, but I've done enough mission teams through our church and through kids that I've worked with, young people I've worked with, to know that some of you could goof off this week. Some of you could actually use an opportunity for service and use it for the furtherance of your own interest as opposed to the kingdom interests. You could use it to perhaps you know, get to know that young man or young woman that you've been eyeing from a distance as opposed to doing the work of the kingdom that might be your top priority. And really what it comes down to is not whether anybody else nails you on this, but whether or not you understand that you're living your life before an audience of one. Who you are when no one's looking. A second thing that I see in Joseph in terms of convictions. First one is he had the conviction to stay sexually pure. A second one is he had the conviction that he would grow in spite of the circumstances. He, went sold, he got sold by his brothers, betrayed by his brothers. He goes down, he gets sold to Potiphar, and the Lord was with Joseph. Can I suggest to you that also means that, that Joseph was with the Lord? That he actively, aggressively sought out, Lord, you've got me here. Sovereign God, Almighty you, God, you've got me in this, in this servant situation, in this slave situation. Later on, he gets sold into, uh, or uh, betrayed into the uh, prison. And it says, the Lord was with Joseph in prison. And the head of the prison puts Joseph in charge. Joseph had convictions to grow in spite of the circumstances. This week, as you go out in service, God is going to challenge you. Now, I'm going to give you an illustration that really is a great illustration up in the northeast where I come from. might not be so great here in Southern California, but let me give it to you see if you figure it out. God is going to call you this week to go into situations where you will make the determina determination of whether you will be a thermostat or a thermometer. You understand that illustration? Maybe not. If you have central heating in your house, <laughs> which we do, your thermostat, you turn to determine what you want the temperature to be. The thermostat determines the temperature. The thermometer only tells you what the temperature is. God's people are thermostats. They go into a hostile environment, and rather than letting the environment dictate to them so that they become like thermometers, wow, that's a really bad environment. They become thermostats. They say, how can I be God's agent of change in this hostile environment? Joseph had that kind of conviction. How can I be God's man? Daniel had that kind of conviction. How can I be God's man in this prison situation, in this captive situation? How can I be God's man or God's woman when I get sick later this week and in the midst of my sickness still need to serve? How can I be God's man or God's woman in a situation where it seems so hopeless but God's put me there as a, an agent of hope? How can I be that kind of person that grows in spite of the circumstances. Back in World War II, there were a lot of people, as you might remember, thrown into Nazi concentration camps. And uh, one of them was a man named Viktor Frankl. Viktor Frankl went on to become a great uh, psychiatrist or sociologist, I can't remember which. But he did a study while he was actually in concentration camps and then after he got out of the concentration camp. And his study was based on what is it that made some of the men in the concentration camp able to flourish 
And why did others of them just give up and die? He said he would see men in the concentration camp, some of whom would just sit in the corner and, and sort of whine and be in self-pity, and they would basically just die slowly but surely. And others of the men in the concentration camp, they would take their last crust of bread and break it in half so they could share it with somebody else. And he said, what was it that made the difference? And this man, who's not a Christian, he's just making an observation from a human point of view, he says, what made the difference was that certain individuals relinquished the freedom of choice and other individuals did not. Or attitudes. You might not have the freedom to live the way you want, you might not have economic freedom, you might not have freedom of good health, but you always have the freedom to choose your attitude. The freedom to say, because of the power of Jesus Christ in me, I will go forward. Because of the Holy Spirit empowering me to choose the right fruit of the Spirit attitudes, I will endure. Joseph had those kind of convictions. He was a thermometer. He was willing to choose his attitude. One other thing that's important to note with Joseph in terms of convictions is that he was willing to leave his dream with God. He left his dream with God. This is still on the point two for those of you note-takers. It's his third conviction, to stay sexually pure, to grow in spite of the circumstances, and to leave his dream in God's hands. All of us have a propensity when we have a dream to want to manipulate it into reality. Maybe I'm a good example of that. When I went finally to the Great Wall of China in October of 1992, you know, that was my fifth attempt to try to get there. And I really feel like it was God saying no those other times because God was the one who had given the dream and God would fulfill it in his time. Joseph had those kind of convictions. And when you have a dream, don't be impatient about the dream, but leave it in the hands of God. A third thing about Joseph that enabled him to endure through the difficulties of working in a cross-cultural environment. Joseph was a servant. He was a servant. Look at the people he served. He served, first of all, Potiphar. Second of all, he served all of his fellow prisoners. Then eventually he would serve all the people of Egypt. Now the hostility between Israel and Egypt is not something that was just in the 1900s. It's something that dates way, way back. And Joseph instinctively would not have wanted to serve these Egyptian people, but he did because he was a man after God's own heart. He was a willing person to be a servant. And finally, hardest of all, Joseph served his brothers. He served the people who had sold him into slavery in the very first place. Sometimes the hardest people for us to serve are fellow Christians who have some way or other betrayed us or hurt us in the past. Joseph is an example of servanthood. Because servanthood means forgiveness. Willing to serve people who might have maligned us. Willing to serve people who might have badmouthed us in some way or other. Joseph was a servant. He didn't have what sociologists call a sense of entitlement. That a lot of good things are my dessert, my due. Instead, he was a servant. J. Oswald Sanders, in his book Spiritual Leadership, quotes a leader from the China Inland Mission. He said, The greatest problem in the missionary world today is that no one wants to be second. No one wants to be second. This week, many of you are going out on service projects and God is going to call you to be second. And that's preparation for the fact that if you go into cross-cultural ministry, either in the United States or to the ends of the earth, many of you are going to be going out and serving the national church that you go to serve for. You'll be second. 
You won't be the top dog. You won't be the head honcho. You will be a servant. And the true way to find out if we're willing to be servants is to see how we respond when somebody treats us like a servant. When you do a lot behind the scenes and you serve and you give and no one sends you a thank you note. And you say, whoa, no one sent me a thank you note. Well, that's because you're a servant. A servant doesn't get thank you notes. A thank you note might be a, a perk, an affirmation from brothers and sisters in the body, but it's not something we can expect if we're going to be servants. So Joseph had a dream. And Joseph had convictions. And Joseph was a servant. Finally, let me just share this with you. Joseph had endurance. I said earlier that one of the most exciting things about young people involved in world missions is the amount of idealism and enthusiasm that they bring. But oftentimes, it's the older folks that understand endurance. And we need both. And you need, as young men and women going out to serve this week, or for some of you who don't go this week, but eventually will go maybe this summer, as you go out in service, you have to understand that endurance is part of following Jesus Christ. You know, you can't go out and change the world with a just, uh, with a just add water type of formula. You know, we live in the instant everything society, and you read the, you tear open the thing and you pour it in, just add water. And sometimes that's the way missions gets presented. You know, if we just do these five magical steps, everything's going to happen. Not necessarily so. Joseph illustrated it, that it has, it needs endurance. Let me remind you of Joseph's life one more time. How old was Joseph when he had his first dream? This is not a rhetorical question, you can answer. He was 17 years old. Now he gets sold into slavery, and we don't know how long transpires in Potiphar's house before he goes to, eventually, uh, prison. But we do know this. At 28 years old, he interprets the dream of the cupbearer and the baker. Now, how do we know that? Because at 30 years old, Pharaoh calls him in to ask him to interpret his dreams. You know, the seven fat cows and the seven thin cows. That dream. And it says, it says two years had passed since he interpreted the dream of the cupbearer and the baker. So at 28, he interprets the cupbearer and the baker's dream. At 30, he goes into Pharaoh's household and becomes the second in command in charge of all of the the famine management for Egypt. At 37, the seven years of plenty is now over. And then it says, two years into the famine, Israel, or Jacob and his sons said, we hear there's food down in Egypt, let's go get it. And they go down and get it. How old is Joseph at this point? Anybody figured it out yet? Somebody say it. 39 years old. How many years between the dream and the reality of the dream? 22 years. See, a lot of us, when we're in college, we like to have the dreams, and if it's not fulfilled by 23 and a half, I mean, we're kind of disappointed. Joseph had a dream at 17, and faithfully he plodded along, even to the point that he forgot his dream. Because in Genesis 42, verse 9, when the brothers came in and they bowed down, it says, Then Joseph remembered his dream. The thing that I want to give you today is endurance. The reality that you're going to make the greatest difference in this world by your faithful marching forward for the sake of Jesus Christ. That this week may be the first seeds of cross-cultural missions sown in your heart, but it's going to be a long-term commitment that makes the world of difference. The days that you spend in the end of this week serving in a cross-cultural context 
may be the beginning of a lifetime of endurance. Several years ago, I was reading through a uh, sports magazine, and I confess I caught on an advertisement this little poem. Now, it, I know I shouldn't say this, but it was an advertisement for Yukon Jack whiskey. But it was still a great poem. And it said up there, uh, it was by Robert Service, who was the poet laureate of the North Country. And he said, there's a race of men that don't fit in, a breed that can't stand still. So they break the heart of kith and kin, and they roam the world at will. And it says, it's from the poem by Robert Service, the men that don't fit in. And I said, yeah, that's what I want to be, a man that doesn't fit in, a man who sets his own pace according to the will of God and makes a difference, going to the ends of the earth for the glory of Christ. So I said to my wife, would you mind finding that poem for me and giving it to me for a Christmas present? I figured it was a pretty easy assignment, but she had to go all over the place to find the whole poem. And he goes through and he says, there's a race of men that don't fit in, a breed that can't stand still, they break the heart of kith and kin, they roam the world at will. And then he goes on to say, they become useless, they become vagabonds, they become friendless, they're losers, they don't amount to anything. And then it says, what they have to realize, and this is the end of his uh, poem, he says, what they have to come to realize is that it's the faithful, steady, plodding ones that win the lifelong race. Remember the tortoise and the hare. What he's saying is it's the tortoises that win the lifelong race. I had that illustrated a few years ago when I went to a track meet. I don't like track very much, but it was free. And I went to a track meet. And uh, they had the, the run-walk competition. Everybody know what the run-walk competition is? It has some technical name. Can I illustrate it? All right. It's the one where you sort of, you know, this one. And it's kind of silly. It looks silly. It's very difficult, I'm told. I've never done it except for just right then. But uh, it's a very difficult race, evidently. And we're watching this, and like all track meets, there's a, a number of different events going on and wanting to go on at the same time. Now, it's a four-lap race, and there's one guy who's bad. I mean, he's really bad. In a four-lap race, he fell a full lap behind now, for those of you who are not uh, track people, that's not an easy thing to do. Because if you've qualified, you, you know, you usually are pretty good. But this guy, he had a little baseball cap on, so he sort of stood out. And everybody's finishing the race. You know, they're winning that, uh, that last lap, the fourth lap. And this guy's just crossing the finish line, finishing lap number three, when everybody else is winning the race. So everybody sort of watching is expecting that this guy is just going to bow out, sort of gracefully accept his loss and get out of town, probably. But he doesn't. And we're in the Boston Garden, which has about 17,000 seats in it. And people start to notice, here's this guy, all by himself now, dead alone on the track. And he's going around. He rounds the first turn. And right at that corner of Boston Garden where he's rounding the turn, some people start to clap. And they're clapping for him. And there's other people waiting to do high hurdles on the track. But some people are starting to clap for this guy. He runs the second turn. Some more people on that end of the Boston Garden, they're clapping. He comes down the stretch the whole side of Boston Garden begins to clap for this guy. He rounds the fourth turn, standing ovation. I mean, 17,000 people are applauding wildly as this guy crosses the finish line dead last. How come? Because he finished. He finished. And the greatest need for you and me to be followers of Jesus Christ is to commit ourselves right up front to be finishers 
Hebrews chapter 12 says that there's a great cloud of spectators sitting in heaven and they're cheering us on. And men and women, you don't have to be first in the race. You don't have to be fifth in the race. You can fall a lap behind. But get back up. Follow Jesus Christ. And Jesus and the co-witnesses in heaven are going to be standing up and giving you ovation as you finish. So as you go out this week, remember that. Endurance. Following Jesus Christ is a lifelong commitment. Make a difference this week. But make a difference that says, I understand what kind of endurance I would need to have to make it in the environment where I'm going to serve this week. Joseph had a dream. He had convictions. He was a servant. He had endurance. Let's imitate this life as we ourselves follow Jesus Christ. Join me in prayer, please. Lord Jesus Christ, who because of the glory set before you endured the cross, I pray, Lord, that we would be men and women who live by our convictions, who fulfill the dreams that you give us in our hearts, who become people who are willing to serve. And most of all, Lord, whether we're talking about schoolwork or we're talking about following Jesus day to day or we're talking about mission work or we're talking about the work that will be done later this week, Give us, Lord Jesus Christ, endurance. We pray these things for the glory of Christ and to the furtherance of the kingdom of Jesus Christ. Amen.